Today we're talking about systemic racism, but it's also an episode about food. See, in this episode, I'm going to ask you to think about racism not as an event or an incident, but as a lens through which you can see the systems that shape our world, such as the ways in which we can access that thing we all need—food. Welcome to What Do We Do Tomorrow, a podcast from Six Degrees at the Institute for Canadian Citizenship, made by the Walrus Lab. I'm Hannah Sung. In 2020, the Black Lives Matter movement ignited around the world to a new level. An estimated 15 to 26 million Americans protested the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. In my neighborhood in Toronto, you can see signs in the windows of people's homes that say "Black and Indigenous Lives Matter." It seems there is a growing awareness of systemic racism, and yet sometimes talking about racism just seems to go in circles. Are you trying to say that this country does not specialize in racism and bigotry? No, I am I, saying that racism exists. I am saying exists, that the United you, States you, of America you, but you, but you have the luxury. That's a conversation, if you can call it that, from CNN between former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner and political commentator Mary Catherine Ham. It's like we're all having different conversations where we can't agree on a few key definitions. So let's make sure we're all on the same track with a definition before we get started. Systemic racism is when you have a system that is founded upon policies and practices and legislation that is inherently biased in favor of another group, usually the dominant, more powerful group in society. So the difference between systemic racism and and racism per se, I tell people, is that racists are Acting out of intention, systemic racists are not acting out of intention at all, but they are having the same negative impact. So one is about intention, the other is about impact. And uh, the reality is that we we still have a long way to go just to understand what systemic racism is. So there it is. It's okay if you don't know everything about systemic racism, because that would mean that you would need to know everything about how all systems work, including government and legislation. But we do need to agree on the definition of systemic racism, which is about the way our world is built and how racial inequities shape people's lives based on their race. And we know it exists based on data, but it's hard to talk about everything all at once. And that's why we're using one focus today as a concrete example: food. Or more specifically, a lack of food. We found things like if you're black in Canada, you're three and a half times more likely to live in a food insecure household than if you're white, and a whole host of other things that really pointed to systemic inequities and the prevalence of anti-black racism in our institutions. That's Paul Taylor. He is the CEO of Foodshare, a food justice organization in Toronto. Paul grew up knowing what it was like to not have a lunch to take to school. Or, in other words, as he wrote in Toronto Life magazine earlier this year, as a black child, I was constantly navigating systemic racism. Foodshare's mission is to dismantle oppressive systems, including racism. I know their work as someone who orders a weekly box of veggies. In fact, one of their options is called the Dismantling White Supremacy Box, and it would arrive at my doorstep filled with lettuce and beets. How do you dismantle white supremacy with veggies or with a garden? Today, my conversation is with Paul Taylor, who will break that down for us. 
I want to start with just getting to know you a little bit better. I want to know what was your favorite food as a child? Oh, my favorite food as a child. Actually, probably one of the first things I learned to make. Uh, my mother taught me to make banana fritters, um, Jamaican-style banana fritters. So almost like little banana pancakes. Um, and, you know, not only were they important to me as a child, but as a young adult, uh, a poor young adult, it was a really helpful recipe because it only required a few ingredients. So there were days where I didn't have a lot of money, but of course had to eat and I was able to to rely on that recipe. So I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for uh, my mother teaching me that. Mm-hmm. And so you were how old when you were allowed to fry up something on the stove? Uh, okay, <laughs> let me think back. I was probably younger than most, pretty early on, maybe eight, nine, ten or so. Uh, very early on. So she, um, you know, nurtured my, uh, my interest and passion uh, for cooking. But the odd thing was, you know, we had this garden, you know, despite how poor we were, um, we had this garden in the backyard. And I never understood why my mother liked going out and spending time in the garden, picking things and eating the things that grew in the garden. I remember as a child, just consistently thinking like, I don't want to have the the fruits and vegetables that the squirrels have peed on. I want the fresh, clean stuff from the grocery store with the nice packaging. You know, it's so funny how um, differently we can think with a little knowledge. And now you're really into farming, urban farming. I know that about your work. Um, can you explain to us your path to food share? Mm-hmm. It's been a, a wild one. <laughs> you know, I um, was a high school teacher, became a vice principal, and then about, let's say, 13, 14 years ago, decided to step away from that work. And I thought, I want to, you know, support folks that, um, you know, were much more like myself as a child, that were materially poor. And I think that society often gives leftovers to. And I thought, you know, I can challenge that. I'm really passionate about teaching. I'm passionate about pedagogy and social justice. And I thought, you know, I'm going to redirect my energy. So I found myself working at a homeless youth shelter. And it was the first time I was really invited into this two-tier or multi-tiered idea of what people who are poor or street involved are entitled to. And it's much less and the quality uh, you know, of the types of things that were being made available wasn't the greatest also. So I think many of us go into you know, wanting to do uh, quote-unquote good work and then find ourselves in these spaces uh, where we may or may not be shocked, but then eventually find ourselves upholding those pre-established values and ideas and norms. So I was really committed to challenging us as an organization to be creative and curious about what it was we were trying to accomplish. What was our end game? How are we going to be supporting homeless youth to not be homeless? So I think that inspired a whole slew of changes that got me curious, even more curious about what it means to work in allyship with uh, low-income communities. Of course, I'm not uh, poor or food insecure anymore, but that took me to the downtown east side. I ended up um, moving to Vancouver I'd never been to British Columbia before, but I guess I'd long been a student of the downtown east side, you know, often referred to as Canada's poorest postal code 
with a significant concentration of charities. So I spent some time working there uh, alongside people that were street involved, survival sex workers, folks dependent on substances. So all of the folks that are typically excluded from any type of structure that's helpful, you know. So we worked together on the principle that everyone has a right to food. Not a right to charity, not a right to handouts, not a right to someone else's leftovers, but the right to food. And this opportunity to come and work at, um, you know, I think it was described as Canada's largest food security organization. And I said, oh, my goodness, you know, this sounds like I've heard about food share. You know, I grew up in Toronto. So the opportunity to return and do work uh, here was really appealing. And I remember having conversations with folks that I know saying, oh, my goodness, I don't know what these folks are thinking. They're hiring someone who's never done food work. I'm an anti-poverty activist at the core of who I am. So I guess I brought that curiosity to my journey to food share. That is Pretty wild, I think. Wild is the word that you use to describe your path (laughs) to food share. Uh, Yeah, it's like got twists and turns in it. But it really seems like the through line is poverty being a kind of teacher to you and giving you a kind of knowledge that you bring to uh, your work to challenge systems. Absolutely. And, and I would say actually one of the, well, my mother may, may not have taught me how to cook brilliantly, but uh, one thing she did teach me was that a couple of things that remained with me. One, you know, if there are changes that I want to see in the world, it's my responsibility to work towards those changes. And two, that better is possible. You know, and I think that's totally at the core of how I approach my thinking around a lot of the issues that uh, and a lot of the inequities that uh, we see. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because, you know, it sounds like when your mom, you describe your mom as an immigrant who thinks that better is possible. And that is definitely, I think, an immigrant mindset. But, you know, some people think like it's about the individual and you pull up your bootstraps. And then, of course, there's a way of thinking that I think you subscribe to, which is like a collective way of changing, you know, you use the word structure earlier. So tell me about food share from a specific point of view of one product, which is the dismantling white supremacy box. That's something that I was subscribing to. Can you tell me about, yeah, Yeah. and I guess it's out of season now, but, you know, tell me about the dismantling white supremacy box. Yeah, you know, as an organization, uh, Future buys millions of pounds of produce each year. And as we hone in on kind of thinking about what it means to dismantle inequities and oppressive systems, we were looking really closely at ourselves and believing that that's where that work has to begin. So if we're buying millions of pounds of produce, well, then we're also thinking we have an opportunity to correct some of those inequities by being really thoughtful around where our funds go. So we launched a good food box that we sell on our our website. Folks across Toronto can jump online and order one and it gets delivered to their home. But we thought, you know, we also want to do everything we can to support BIPOC growers, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color uh, growers. So the 
produce in the dismantling white supremacy box is exclusively grown by farms that are owned, led, or farm organizations that are run by BIPOC folks. And I think it also gave people an opportunity to, you know, do the same thing when it comes to where they were spending their dollars and who they were supporting and recognizing You know, every time someone makes a purchase of the dismantling white supremacy food box, you know, it's really a reminder, I think, of the inequities that exist within our food system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when your food box arrives at my house, I use it as an example to just talk to my kids about food who also grow some food in our backyard garden, because what I hate is food waste, obviously. And I try to tell them, you know, the food didn't start with me cooking it for you. Like it started (laughs) with a farmer and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all the labor that goes into it. So I don't know if it's getting in there, but I'm trying hard (laughs) with them. (laughs) Love that. Yeah. I'm wondering, you know, 2020 has been such a totally out there year. How has the pandemic affected people who do not have enough money for enough food? You know, um, the pandemic has has, um, significantly affected levels of food insecurity in this country. So pre-pandemic, there were 4.4 million Canadians uh, that struggled with access to food. And that's probably, that's that's Ken's numbers, but it's an underestimate because it doesn't engage the homeless population. It doesn't engage Indigenous folks on reserve. Did you say 4.4 million people? 4.4 million people. That's like Toronto, everyone in Toronto and Mississauga combined. So that was a crisis pre-pandemic. Yeah. By May of, of 2020, StatsCan um, produced a report that suggests that that number had increased from 4.4 to 5.5 million Canadians. And, you know, and I think that number is a bit tricky as well because it doesn't take into account the severity. So your your question was, you know, what's happened to folks who were food insecure before? Well, they're struggling even more so now. And when you think about some of the interventions that have been introduced, uh, so like the CERB that um, many people have uh, have appreciated and have been applauding. The Canada Emergency Relief Benefit. You know, and I think there's room for that. But I also think there's two things missing with some of those interventions. Why $2,000? You know, in the city of Toronto, where I live, the average cost of a one bedroom is upwards of is north of $1,700. So I don't know where $2,000 comes from. I don't know when the government intends to gauge the efficacy, because of course, we've seen that increase in food insecurity at the same time that the CERB was being made available. And I feel like I'd be remiss not to acknowledge that, you know, as the federal government said, here's $2,000 to everybody that's in need right now. We still have people that are on social assistance and we still have people that are on uh, disability income supports across this country that receive significantly less than $2,000. And I've had a number of those folks reach out to me, not understanding why they're not seen by this government and why their struggles not seen. So I think... We've got, you know, people are struggling. People are making really difficult choices around food. And I think they deserve elected officials that see them and that are working for them. So, you know, I wonder if in the year 2020, when the Black Lives Matters protests, I feel like became a very defining aspect of our of our year. I wonder if people are thinking about food insecurity and food systems as a matter of racial justice. I mean, what do you see? Are people thinking about race and racism and food? I guess it depends on who you are. You know, Mm -hmm. there are some people who 
have been allowed uh, historically and continue to be allowed to not see racism in the way that other people live it. But what I do think is starting to happen is more of a, a little bit more of a conversation about how racism impacts who has food and who doesn't, but also when it comes to who's growing food and whose labor's involved in the food system, um, I think we're starting to see a bigger conversation about racism, which for us is really exciting because that's the stuff that we have to address if we're really going to tackle white supremacy and racism and anti-indigeneity within our food system. Mm-hmm. And so when you say that some people are not thinking about this at all. You are a former educator. You know, do you see a food share as a way to shape the conversation? Absolutely. And, and we've already seen that, to be quite frank. You know, there wasn't a lot of uh, mainstream organizations uh, working in food systems that were really pushing a conversation about racism and the need to tackle racism in Canada. So I think it's one of the things that's been really central to Food Share's conversation and our work, so much so that we actually partnered with the University of Toronto to do some research about looking at the interconnections of food insecurity, and anti-black racism. And we found things like if you're black in Canada, you're three and a half times more likely to live in a food insecure household than if you're white. And a whole host of other things that really pointed to systemic inequities and the prevalence of anti-black racism in our institutions. And that shifted the conversation in this country, I think, around how we think about food insecurity. So for example, you know, we once thought um, things like a basic income is a really important intervention because, and I still think it's an important intervention, but I think we thought it was a really important intervention because we actually see what happens when people have access to a basic income because we have one in this country. As soon as someone becomes a senior, they're at retirement age, they're able to access old age security, the guaranteed income supplement, uh, and of course their own retirement savings. So what we see aggregately when we look across the country is when someone hits retirement age, their risk of food insecurity decreases pretty significantly. What this research did was look specifically at the experience of black Canadians and found that it wasn't the same for black Canadians. The prevalence remained high. And maybe I'll share one other that really jumped out at us, and it was around home ownership. For obvious reasons, one can, I think, appreciate that if someone owns a home, they're less likely to be food insecure. Again, looking at um, the experience of Black Canadians, it was very uh, illuminating because the percentage of Black homeowners that are food insecure, 14.3%, is just about equal to the percentage of white renters that are food insecure at 14.5%. So home ownership is not serving as the same type of protection for black folks as it does for white folks. So ultimately, what this research was telling us was that um, the reason that the variance exists is simply because of anti-black racism in, in, in its existence in pretty much every single institution that um, we interact with. I want to dig in a little more to the last piece, just just to understand it better. So why does home ownership not have that protective kind of, you know, effect on black homeowners? Yeah, well, we're inferring based on that data that likely what's happening is black homeowners are buying homes of less value. 
They don't have the incomes to support homes with more value, perhaps paying higher interest rates and the like. And maybe even, do you think the appreciation of real estate in neighborhoods, do, do you think? That are absolutely. Yeah. That are predominantly black. Absolutely. They're not appreciating in the same way. That's a mm-hmm. major factor. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So then does food insecurity always kind of boil down to your financial means? Or is there anything else? Predominantly more so than anything else, food insecurity is an issue about income. And I think, you know, it's kind of a silly term, I'll be honest. This is the first time I've ever said that. But food insecurity is a silly term. I've spent a lot of time with poor folks and folks that don't have enough food. And I've never heard them use the term food insecurity. And I think one of the things that I think it does is it um, depersonalizes how horrific of an experience it is to not have the food that you need. You know, um, when I'm like, people are hungry, they don't have enough food. And I think we have to be critical of the language that we're using to describe people's experiences and the impact of the, of the language that we use. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. So we've talked a little bit about food share in terms of your goals and the projects that you do. When it comes to people who are hungry that you meet out there in the city, you know, how do they interact with food share? You know, the really interesting thing that I think uh, excites me a lot about food share, you know, let me give you a little historical context first. Food share uh, was opened in 1985, which is only four years after the first food bank opened in this country. It became clear to folks connected to food share that uh, the types of food that was being made available to people who were materially poor through food banks wasn't food that was necessarily optimal and helpful uh, to them. Food that I often now describe as food-like substances. You know, folks are going to food banks and they're being given things that look like food, but really lack often nutrients and, and the few that people need. So in lots of ways, I think Foodshare thought that this was very harmful and that folks needed more choice. So Foodshare's approach is really, I think, different. It's not about redistribution of uh, other people's leftovers or corporate waste. It's about beautiful, fresh, grade A produce. And we work with communities to actually build community-run food assets in those communities. So we don't have middle-class, lovely white folks from another neighborhood coming to volunteer and hand out food to folks. It's people in that community who are saying, why don't I have access to fresh fruits and vegetables like everybody else does? So they're building with us food assets, things like subsidized produce markets uh, that are, again, resident-led looking at underutilized public land and converting that into food growing spaces so that folks in those communities can not only grow food to support their food needs, but again, it's about income. So selling that food um, so that they can generate uh, some revenue as well. So I would say that's one part of Food Share's work. Community-based programs and food programs and the like are really important in lots of ways, but they don't get at the crux of why these issues exist, one, and they don't challenge those issues. So a lot of our work is really focused on helping people recognize that food insecurity has little to do with food and it's about income. 
And so we advocate with uh, various levels of government to advance the right to food that we have in this country by looking at public policy and income-based interventions or interventions that ultimately have an impact on people's income. Can you tell me an example of a kind of economic intervention that FoodShare really would like to see in the future? Mm -hmm. You know, when we talk to people about why it is that they're struggling to buy all of the food that they need, uh, one of the things we hear is because their rent is too high, their medication is too expensive. So the types of interventions that are going to have so much more impact on people's ability to access food than, you know, giving out three-legged carrots are things like building affordable housing, which this country used to do in pretty significant ways up until the early 90s when that was halted. You know, we used to build co-ops. We used to build affordable rental. We used to build social housing. And we stopped all of that as part of the Cretchen Martin deficit slashing years. Well, that was what led to the housing crisis that we're in. So what we'd like to see is more of an investment and a return to building affordable housing, affordable rental, but also things like a pharmacare plan. You know, this is outrageous. The amount of people that I've talked to who say to me that they're not taking their medication sometimes because they don't have food to eat it with or because their medication is so expensive, they're going out with, without food. So I feel like in one of the richest countries in the world that claims to have a healthcare system, I used to call it a sick care system, but I, I don't even think that it's that. Because, you know, when I talk to also nurses and, and, and doctors, um, one of the things I've learned is that, you know, it costs $1,200 or so for um, someone to spend a night in, in a hospital. You know, when you contrast that to the, what, $30 it costs sometimes for the penicillin that someone might need or the medication that they might need, like it, it's, it's, it, it just doesn't compare. So I think we need to ensure that people have access to the medicine that they need and access to the food that ultimately shouldn't be divorced from a healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering when it comes to the very detrimental health effects of racism, is there a way to create policy that protects people, for example, from anti-blackness or from anti-indigeneity, from the social impacts and health impacts of racism? The first thing I'll say to that is, you know, um, I've had that question a few times. And one of the things I've been reflecting on is actually uh, much of what's been proposed has been a go-forward intervention. You know, we're talking about go-forward interventions often because folks at the table coming up with these interventions are often white folks who have the privilege of a go-forward intervention, who haven't had the intergenerational health inequities, wealth inequities imposed upon them. As has been said often, there can be no uh, reconciliation without truth. So I feel like we need to acknowledge the long-term impacts of anti-black racism and actually what it's done to people's health and wealth, and there needs to be some form of restitution. So I feel like that's the first thing that we need to do. Then we need to start looking at go-forward interventions. And for me, it's less about one specific policy. I'm more interested in advancing our fundamental human rights and using that framework to evaluate policies like a basic income. Because, of course, a basic income on its own 
doesn't work very well if the cost of housing continues to skyrocket. So if we have a framework that looks at what I call joined up policy, combination of public policies intended to advance our human rights, that's when I start to get excited. But we need a new framework for this, these types of conversations. And it has to begin with human rights, because clearly what we're seeing is uh, flagrant human rights violations. If we have a right to food in this country and black and indigenous people are among the hungriest, that is a flagrant human rights violation that um, needs to be thoughtfully addressed. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say, I absolutely love all the work that you do uh, with FoodShare and all the the public advocacy that you do as well. Thank you. And when you talk about community gardens that engage the residents, I think of the story that you told about your mom's backyard garden and how you (laughs) didn't even appreciate it as a child, but it's like it's come Mm -hmm. full circle. Mm -hmm. I think that's really, really important for me because it reminds me that we all get invited into these conversations at different times and in different ways, myself included. So it's really important, I think, to be gracious and to be patient. Uh, with folks, especially if they're interested in learning more. You know, I'm less patient with folks who are not interested in learning more. But one of the things, uh, you know, with some of my colleagues, I, I have to remind us all that really important to be patient with folks because we came to uh, the way that we think um, at one point and we want to make sure that we're creating a bigger space for more folks to come to that conversation in a way that feels uh, right to them. So I think that's really key. I love that because, you know, that's what we're trying to do with this podcast, too. It's a little bit of the um, opposite of the impatience and the hot takes of social media. You know, it's like having mm-hmm, real mm-hmm. conversations. Um, so, you know, we have covered a lot of your thoughts on policy and the joined up nature of what you'd like to see. But we always love to end every episode by mentioning an action that people can take because i think that even speaking about black lives matter and racial the racial reckoning of 2020 you know i think that a lot of people have seen that listening and learning is a thing but it's not an act you know like we need to take steps forward for change so i wonder what would be your recommendation for people listening today for a thing they could do tomorrow to be a part of a solution Oh, that's great. I really appreciate that question. I probably am going to say a few things. Yeah. And I think the first thing is that's really been helpful to me, like I mentioned earlier, is what my mother taught me. Uh, the first thing uh, I think we need to do is believe that better is possible. There are forces that are trying to convince us that things like poverty and hunger and access to food are inevitable. Those things are not inevitable. So I think the first thing we need to do is recognize and believe that better is possible. The next thing we need to do is we need to make sure our politicians now, our local politicians, go to your city councilor, go to your MPP and your MP and say, I want to live in a country where people are not homeless. I want to live in a country where people have the food that they need. And I expect you to be working on that. What are you doing uh, to advance that? And hold them accountable. They're working for us. And somehow, some way, we've let them work for some of us, but not all of us. So I think what we need to do is say, all of us are important. And we want to see you working for all of us. But I also think those dinner table conversations are really important because that's where we're going to break down some of that thinking that allows people to believe that better isn't possible or where we're, we're able to have conversations, more longer conversations about the impact of racism on these issues. So I think that's also key. 
but we've also got to support. There are folks on the front lines of social movements that are under-resourced. So I think we've got to be supporting those groups in whatever ways uh, that we can. We've got to be looking for those call to action and making sure we're doing what we can that feels right to us. Those are some of the things that I would suggest are really, really key. I love it. Have the conversations, write the letters, write the emails, and uh, yeah, they're, they're all great suggestions. Thank you so much, Paul Taylor. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Thank you. So there you have it. Advice direct from Paul Taylor of FoodShare. Write to your local representatives and demand that they work on policy from a human rights perspective. It's something that's especially poignant this year during COVID when so many people are experiencing hardship of all kinds. And if you want to know what types of organizations you can support when he talks about people who are on the front lines of the social movements, well, there's FoodShare, which is where you can start, and you can find them at foodshare.net. And if you have food justice organizations that you want to highlight that are doing anti-racism work, share this podcast on social media with the hashtag TomorrowPodcast and let us know about them. Thank you for listening to What Do We Do Tomorrow? Our last episode was about reimagining territory on how settler people can show solidarity with indigenous nations whose treaty rights get broken rather than upheld by Canada. Our guest was Ryan McMahon, and he's brilliant. So go back and check it out if you haven't already listened. Coming up, our next episode is on economic inclusion and what it would look like if we could build a caring economy. Make sure you're subscribed. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This episode was produced by Noah Snyderman. Executive producers are Aisha Jara of ICC and Six Degrees, the Global Forum for Inclusion, and Mahira Lakshman at the Walrus Lab. In this episode, we used news clips from CNN, a panel between political commentator Mary Catherine Hamm and former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner. And we used a clip from the Sacramento Bee covering a Black Lives Matter protest in May 2020. The clip on systemic racism from the Honorable Murray Sinclair is from when he accepted the Adrian Clarkson Prize for Global Citizenship in September of 2020. To find that and to see more from the ICC and Six Degrees, please visit inclusion.ca. And I'm your host, Hannah Sung. If you like what you heard, share the show, forward it to a friend, and think about rating the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out on the show and the conversations that we're having. Thank you so much for listening.